Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is the Chief Financial Officer for the City of Quincy, Massachusetts, a TEDx speaker and economist overseeing a $350 million budget. Please welcome to the show, Eric Mason. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Eric. Oh, thank you very much for having me on. Firstly, I'd like to start off by asking you to introduce yourself and your work for the city of Quincy. Well, you did a great job summarizing it. Um, I'm currently the chief financial officer for the city of Quincy, Massachusetts. Uh, We have about a $350 million operational budget. We have about a $500 million debt portfolio that's uh, used to pay for a lot of our infrastructure improvements. My personal background is um, I I was born and raised in Quincy, Massachusetts. My family owns a small business here that I worked at since I was younger. Um, I'm a 2014 graduate of West Virginia University with with a bachelor's degree in economics. And I'm a current master's student at WVU in uh, the Applied Economics program. Uh, most of my, all my work, my professional career has been at the local level. I'm um, kind of, a, I guess you'd call me a public finance wonk. Um, I, uh, my department and I, have, we've built, uh, we build the budget, we set the tax rate, and we're involved in a lot of the economic and financial policy that makes up, uh, you know, the city of Quincy. It's a city of about 100,000 people uh, just south of Boston. So uh, most of my professional career, I'd say all my professional career, has been revolving around public finance. So I'm, I'm very happy. I'm always excited to talk about it. So I'm happy that we can uh, discuss that today. Perfect. Um, well, one of your areas is f- of focus as CFO is affordable housing, which is historically proven to be a challenge all across the nation. The median housing price is over eight times the median annual household income in Quincy which means that with a 10% down payment, the average household would have to contribute almost half of their income if they were to purchase the average home. This indicates that the market for housing in Quincy is skewed to the left, as is the case all across the United States and much of the world. As CFO, can you tell us what your approach towards affordable housing has been and how you view the situation on the ground in Quincy? Yeah. Um, so one of the important things to remember about when we talk about affordable housing is that I, I had a great, uh, my mentor in economics is always great at this. Um, economics, finance, sometimes we tend to dehumanize statistics like, oh, you know, only 10% of people can afford can uh, afford a house or something to that nature. It's remember that the numbers we're looking at are real people, they're real numbers, and it really means something. That's a you know warm bed to sleep in is what that number means when something's unaffordable. Uh, one of the difficulties of being of any city in the country, but especially older cities, um, in older cities that are beside very, very large cities, like we're, we're the city immediately south of Boston, is that we face this thing called uh, the Alonzo Muth Mills model, which is basically saying that um, rent curves accelerate the closer you get to a central business district. So just like cities around New York, um, cities around Atlanta, cities around Boston, um, there's a lot of economic forces that are beyond the control of local policymakers, um, particularly around the value of land. I'll, I'll give you an example. 90% of a home's value in the city of Quincy is just in the land. It's not actually in the building itself. And uh, r- r- there's a very, very famous economist. He's actually out of Chicago, uh, Richard Hornbeck, who writes a lot about this, and he's, he's fantastic. Um, but, but talking about the difficulties of getting public policy to match in reducing land costs and land rent costs, when the market just is so heavily forcing and driving up values. So some of the, I work very heavily with the uh, affordable housing um, trust we have for the city of Quincy. Um, the state of Massachusetts 
we have something called Section 7. Section 7 is also in other states maybe called inclusionary zoning, which says that any developer who builds any more than 10 units has to contribute either 10% of the units or 5% of the construction costs into a fund that can then be deployed for uh, creating more affordable housing. The method that the city of Quincy has taken is a D all the above. We have bought units, we have accepted units into the system, into what we call the uh, uh, state housing inventory system. We have subsidized the building of, 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 of houses and apartment complexes that have deed restrictions. We have partnered with state agencies and you know, uh, you know large, very large, I'd say, nonprofits who are able to build large projects. Specifically, a pro and we've even coupled those with tax agreements to try and reduce the uh, implicit costs of building affordable housing. We have a very successful project here in uh, in the city of Quincy uh, in, South, in Quincy Point called the Watson, which features 28 units for people with 50% AMI area median income, which is the statistic HUD uses to tell somebody is in the affordable housing bracket from 50% of AMI to 160% of AMI. We also have uh, uh, 600 units through the Quincy Housing Authority, which is a quasi-state agency. We don't oversee it. That um, oh, in It's an area of Quincy called Germantown that has consolidated um, affordable housing. And so when you talk about the approach, how do you solve affordable housing? How do you solve the housing crisis? There are, I, I'm a big believer in market solutions to everything, but in terms of a regulatory process, I think it's important that municipalities, whether it be Quincy, whether it be any organization, takes a D all the above. I, I don't think this is a sit, uh, situation where ideologies and being an ideologue is beneficial. I think that in a case-by-case -case basis, there's an optimal solution for each case. And taking a broad, and rejecting wholesale any approach on political ideological back backing, I, I think it's going to create, make the system worse. So my personal opinion, what I've seen when I've been involved in these projects is it's a put the politics aside, come up with good solid policy that creates, that creates the most doors that people can walk through. And that really is interesting because um, a lot of the time when uh, across states, you have the, the state Congress or, um, you know, legislative body that gets involved um, that are accountable to the public often in an election season or, or close to one, um, a lot of the policy, um, as you said, tends to skew towards um, political ideologies more so than actually finding effective solutions, because what's effective um, is, is not necessarily what's what's popular or, you know, it's, it's not necessarily what you can get up on a stage and say, oh, well, we did this and we're going to do this. Um, it doesn't sound as impressive. It doesn't sound as as bold. So um, as, as CFO, I think that's one of the, the um, unique positions that you get to hold where you're not di directly um, elected by the public, but I'm guessing the people that appoint and oversee you are. Um, yes, yes. So. I'm very thankful for that, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I'm not cut out for politics. I'm a, I'm a very uh, binary thinker. One, I like ones and zeros. Uh, anybody who can cut their teeth in politics has a lot of respect for me. Yeah, and that that really gives you a lot of um, it gives you the ability to think um, just in terms of purely purely rational terms here, um, and, and just as as it relates to the issue, and not how you know it's going to be perceived by voters um, across across the board. So another area of focus for you as CFO is education. 
So although Massachusetts is one of the leading states in terms of educational outcomes, the United States as a whole ranks amongst the worst in terms of educational outcomes among the developed world, despite spending more than all but a few of them. As the person in charge of the budget in Quincy, do you think educational outcomes in Quincy could be improved with just a larger budget, or are there deeper underlying issues that require more than just higher funding? Yeah, I mean, so the, the, the question about education spending is, is always something absolutely fascinating. And it's actually, it was a big portion of my, my TED talk, which is that the vast majority of education dollars are spent at the local level. And uh, one of the things that's that the United States struggles with and, and any and any metropolitan city struggles with is the eclectiveness of the group it serves. Um, so when you have a country like the United States, which has so many different languages and so many different uh, hurdles to overcome to provide efficient um, educational outcomes, it, it can create difficulties that are inherent just to having such a great system in and of itself in terms of like, you know, I think we can all agree that systems in which people with different backgrounds interact is another part of my TED talk, not to rehash that, that the more interaction, the better. So systems that have that have been built in inefficiencies. What's very interesting in the city of Quincy is that we have a school named uh, Francis Parker. Um, and, you know, Quincy has presidents from it and John Hancock's from here. We have all famous names. So we have a, we, we have a school named after Francis Parker, who is Francis Parker. He actually came up with the current modern education uh, system, and it was called the Quincy model. And it's experimental, experiential learning, where it's the modern, it's a type of education system that's used in classrooms all across the world, which is basically getting students to engage with the material and not being taught it rotely. Um, in terms of education spending, um, the concept of just throwing more money at a problem really doesn't have um, a good economic outcome. Um, it, there isn't a dollar per dollar solution. It's about encouraging and incentivizing programs, whether it be in-classroom material, advanced uh, advanced education for teachers. Um, it's, a, it's a holistic approach. And I, I think that's really what the basis of the, when Francis Parker came up with the Quincy model, is something that's carried today. Particularly one of the most interesting facts I find about when I look at other cities in Massachusetts, and you know, Massachusetts is a very, is a state that like you said has very good educational outcomes, is Quincy um, is, in the, is in the top 10 percentile in terms of standardized testing for the state of Massachusetts. Um, but we're at the 48th percentile for tax rates but we spend a disproportionate amount compared to other places on education so the question becomes we have three variables that put you on three different points of the of the distribution curve which one's material and i think what it is is that they're all material to one another it's the relationship between what are you prioritizing under our current our current mayor has been in office since 2007 and he's rebuilt four schools um, using the massachusetts uh, school building uh, authority which is a tax, it's a tax policy program where basically there's a very tiny surcharge on sales tax throughout the state that's collected and used to incentivize either building new schools or accelerated repairs for old schools. And because of financial decisions made by my predecessor and made by the mayor long before I came into office, uh, my office is able to benefit from being good financial situations to continuously invest in new schools. It sounds kind of archaic, but the ability to continuously make substantial capital investments into education systems seems to be a winning recipe. It seems to be that if you can put product, if you can put a better school in there with more advanced technology, um, better 
adapted for the current learning environment, which right now is the ability to go digital, you have better outcomes. So I, what I think is, I don't think there's a single solution. I think it's the constantly adapting the solution to meet the problem you're having. Quincy has a very interesting um, situation, which is that um, about 30 to 40% of our population is Asian American. And we have a very high uh, rate of non-English speakers in our school. So what we've done is that we've really prioritized that ability to break down the language barrier. And that's another issue that is that, that we overcome that increases our outcomes. So when I look at it from my perspective, which is just the guy who you know, has to look at the, the pluses and minuses on a balance sheet, there's a high return for any investment in education. And there's an even higher return, the lower, the more you can bring down co- uh, the, bar- the barrier costs, whether it's a language barrier, an income barrier, or even a housing barrier, to be honest, to, to kind of speak upon what we just talked about, the better off we are at lowering those barriers, it's a better opportunity for these students to succeed. That's at least my personal philosophy on it and what I've seen in my work. Well, that's that's really interesting um, because obviously um, I think in your answer, what you addressed is it, it really is twofold. Um, so it, it's not just making a higher higher investment or, or throwing more money at it. Obviously, if if we were to make larger capital investments in, in the educational system, that that is something that could um, contribute to one part of um, raising educational outcomes, but it's also making sure that that money is is being spent effectively, creating those sorts of programs, um, and, and also um, addressing the underlying issues. Um, you know, the things that prevent people from succeeding. Um, in, in the educational context. So um, the city of Quincy has an unemployment rate higher than the U.S. average, but an extremely high predicted economic growth rate nonetheless, um, especially um, forecasts for the next 10 years. Um, Quincy has a higher local income and property taxes than much of the rest of the country, but a higher income on average as well. So what is your opinion regarding the current levels of taxation across the board in Quincy? And were it solely in your hands, what changes would you make in order to recommend, uh, what changes would you recommend in order to maximize economic growth over the long run? Yeah, um, so just to address the unemployment uh, side of that. Um, so Quincy, whenever you have large cities, you, you do have upticks in unemployment. Um, there's a couple different reasons why we observe that and uh, when we talk about that whole field called urban economics like one of my favorite fields there's some really good economists in there um, but basically when you have these uh, agglomeration effects you really do tend to see unemployment uptick and that's because of the functionality of unemployment um when you have so there's three types of there's three types of unemployment there's frictional which is just people choosing not to work there's structural, which is, peop- which is people who no longer have the skill set to be employed. And you have cyclical unemployment, which is, as you know, that's just business cycle. What you, what you end up having when you have a denser population, a population which is how cities form, which is basically opportun- opportunity costs relative to transactional costs for whatever biz- business is being developed in that area. When you see these cycles elongate over time and stack over time, that does induce what we call a higher baseline unemployment. Uh, so that's true with all cities. So I don't think, you know, unfortunately, I don't think Quincy is an exception to that rule, but I certainly don't think it's breaking that rule on the north or south side. I think it's just part of the effects of kind of urban geospatial economics. 
in terms of the, ta- the taxing, I think uh, my, my office, we set the tax rate where the, we are the people who calculate our tax levy. And I always find ta- taxes are always very, property taxes, which is what the city has control over, always very fascinating because a property tax is in theory a regressive tax. It's just saying, doesn't matter how much income you have, your property for every $1,000 it's worth, you're gonna pay the city $12.10. That's what the math is if it's a residential property. Um, but if you, if, if your house value is what we would call endogenous to your income. The more money you make, the more likely you are to have a more expensive house. So even though property taxes are inherently flat and regressive, they do tie pretty progressively to income. In in terms of property tax, I, I really think it's one of those taxes that people pay that they tangibly see. I think a lot of times when it comes to paying federal, or in the case of Massachusetts, we also have a state income tax. Uh, they don't really see it as a tangible tax. Um, they, they, there's this whole phenomenon a bit based on tax separation. The further an individual fails from the tax dollars they're getting taken to what they're getting back, they, they tend to be more hesitant and more reserved in wanting to increase those taxes. But as somebody who's been through my fair share battles of tax rates and tax rate increases, what I've seen is that the discussion is rarely ever on taxes going up too much but it's on why the tax is going up. In Quincy, historically, our taxes have always been disproportionate to, to speak to something earlier again, is education. Um, our education budget in some years, will, will, is, or in most years, is the largest growing factor. And it's by far the largest anything in the budget. It's, you could add up all employee benefits, and it's still $30 million less than what we're just putting in our education budget. Um, and a lot of those employee benefits are for teachers. So if you absorb those costs into education, it's even higher. Generally speaking, 50% of our budget, if you include debt service and fringe benefits, just goes to education. So when somebody sees their taxes going up, their property taxes going up, if you're, maintain, if you're maintaining or improving services and you continue to produce a strong educational um, product, you, I, do see, I, I think people see the value in that. And it definitely drives up home value prices. Which is again, that's a lot of people. That's the largest investment they'll ever make in their life is their home. So you, when you're doing tax policy and you're passing tax policy and you're passing taxes, it's important to remember: does the per, does the constituent, does the citizen feel that they're getting their dollars worth of tax? And in a lot of cases, if the answer to that question is yes, you will see a very healthy tax policy bloom. In the state of Massachusetts, where we have a proposition two and a half, which has a levy ceiling. So the city of Quincy, the average levy ceiling or the amount that a city can raise its taxes without having to pass a referendum vote is about 1.8 million. Uh, the city of Quincy has a four, has a $44 million cap. And it's the, the and that's um 30, that, that would put us in the number three in the state. And just a few years ago, we it was only about 35 million, but we've been able to keep keep investing in schools and parks and new projects. But because of fiscal discipline, you end up growing that gap, which allows you to take further advantage of certain state state programs. So when you look at taxation, it, it, it's not um, it, it, sometimes people look at it as an umbrella term that everything's a tax and all taxes are the same. What I've found out is that your local taxes, when people see it as paving roads, building seawalls, building new schools, building parks, um, they, they tend to be a little more hands-on and they tend to understand when those taxes have to go up. So in terms of tax policy, when it's the when it's local tax and it's uh it's property tax, 
I think people really do feel strongly if they're getting the return like they do in Quincy that it's worth the investment. Uh, and you, you did ask me a funny question: uh, if taxes were in your hand, and I, I think it would ever be. Ter- uh, I think it would always be scary if an economist ever got to set tax policy. <laughs> I think we'd be able to decide. I think that'd be the first one. Um, if I could set a unilateral tax policy for, say, the state of Massachusetts or whatever it may be, and there was no rules, just no Massachusetts general law, and you could pass those taxes everywhere you would like, um, I'm a big proponent of reducing payroll tax. Um, I think if you reduce the cost uh, to hire an employee and to keep an employee on your tax rolls, I think you would lower unemployment. The unemployment rate would fall. I think that would result in more pot, more money in employees' pockets. So I think that would also help address um, the housing issue. Um, I, I think a lowering a payroll tax or making it more efficient and lower cost to do business will always be a good tax policy. That that lowering any tax that, and I'm not talking about just like a corporate tax rate. I'm talking particularly to taxes tied to employees. Um, if you can lower those, the cost burden to bring on new employees, I think that has many, many great ripple effects throughout a local economy, a regional economy, a state economy, a national economy, that lowering payroll taxes, I, I'm not, I know they can't be zero. I'm not, I'm not, uh, I'm not that, uh, that extreme, but by lowering that, I think that opens the door for hiring new employees. And I think that's a good way to, you know, cut into, you know, higher unemployment rates and even address affordable housing in some instances. Well, certainly, um, education is is one of those those unique unique places where uh, any government um, in, invests their money. So, obviously, when when um, you impose a, a higher taxation um, or just any any taxation at all, um, you you take some money out of the economy, um, which obviously results in decreased investment and, and less capital formation over the long run. Um, the only the only way you avoid that is um, if the government also takes the money that they they took out of the economy and is also simultaneously investing that same money. Um, and often um, a lot of places are it's much more transparent and much easier to see exactly what the return on investment was. It's a lot trickier with education because if I mean, if you put you know, a couple million dollars um, into the elementary school system, it's not going to be, I mean, it's going to be decades before you start seeing any sort of return on that. Um, and even then it's, it's almost impossible to quantify exactly what the added um, financial benefit to the city was of an, an increase in spending there. Um, so that's you're absolutely right. I mean, just to real quick, I, you're hundred percent right. And that's one of the tougher things in all of economics, but especially in local economics is when you put a heavy investment in a kindergarten program or a pre-K program, a lot of questions are like, why should I put a couple million dollars in that? A, a city around us recently invested $3.1 million in a pre-K program. That's a, that's an investment. You're, pay, you're, you're basically buying a bond for $3.1 million that you can't cash out for 20 years. And what's unfortunate is that when you do, when those those children become, you know, productive members in society and productive workers, you don't get to say, well, look, they could have been X because you stopped them from becoming X. So a lot of times that leaves public policymakers not even being able to say, look, look what good I did, because there's no negative to show that happened. And I that is, you kind of hit it right on the head is that it's it's a long term investment. It's not a year long investment. 
Yeah. And it's, it's even harder to show. Cause if you, um, for example, you know, you, instead of investing in education, you give a subsidy to a company, it lowers the price of a good. And, you know, everyone can see, well, this was the price of gas, or this was the price of grocery. And now this is how much it costs you. And, you know, your life is more affordable in a week from when the tax was imposed. Um, it's exactly, it, it's much harder to quantify exactly what the, you know, an, an extra million dollars spent on pre-K education, how much more will that result in? So, I mean, that's that's another thing where it's it's interesting because you're not, as CFO, you're not directly accountable to the public. So you don't have to explain that. You don't have to get up on a stage and, and talk to voters and explain that to them, which would be a challenge in enough itself. Yeah. Um, I, I do have a very open mind. I'll actually tell you, like, um, I, I, one of my favorite parts of my job is... Uh, I do get calls from citizens constituents and again like I don't have the stomach for politics so sometimes it's it, it, that adds a nice layer of just honest conversation on, on a lot of these things I mean I do get a lot of calls on education and I get a lot of calls on development whether it be affordable housing it's just traditional development development and being able to talk to people and just kind of give them a rundown on what we're looking at how these things affect them it's honestly like one of my favorite parts of the job like I'm a numbers guy like don't get me wrong I, put me in our studio and have me you know code a nonlinear model i'm a happy guy but sometimes it's nice to talk to you know i grew up i grew up my family owns a gas station in the auto body shop i grew up pumping gas so sometimes it's fun to call you get a call from somebody who's like you know you pumped their gas for five years of your life and now you're in the position i'm in um, when you get to talk to them about things that really matter to them like you know and it sounds funny but like you know we talk about these giant federal policies that are so monolithic and huge in terms of scope that they almost feel like they don't impact the individual. But like I had a call a couple of days ago with a gentleman who um, we redid a park in front of his house and uh, we paid for it using hotel motel tax, which are people staying in hotels. And um, it, there's a surcharge or occupancy tax and we collect that. And we, you can, in the state of Massachusetts, you can only spend it on park improvements or tourism or historic preservation. So we, we redid this old park and uh, it was already a nice park, but we really brought it to like another level. Our, our mayor's really big park guy. Um, I can't tell, I got a call from him and he's asking me how we paid for it. And I'm explaining how it paid for it. So he says to me at the end, he goes, you mean that has no effect on my taxes? I go, well, unless you're gonna stay in a hotel in Quincy, I go, no. And he was like, oh, that's that's awesome. And I'm like, well, that's kind of the fun part of the job. Like I'm, I don't, there's no, I don't have a political agenda. So it makes it very easy to be, when somebody says, hey, we need to build a park or can you find the money? Absolutely. And then you use this this method and you get to talk to some, somebody who, you know, all these giant public policies, but that's just a park improvements of public policy, too. And now when he has his coffee of, of every morning on his deck, he has a beautiful park that gets all different kids and people from all different ages have a, have a place to recreate. I mean, yeah, it's small compared to, you know, a two trillion dollar infrastructure spending bill. But to that, those families that live in that neighborhood and that guy you know, who's been a resident of Quincy's entire life, it probably means a lot to them. I really think it does. Yeah. Um, well, that's, that's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's an amazing example of how um, a city, a city, especially like Quincy, I think the population is something like a hundred thousand. Yeah. So um, overall it is, it is a much smaller, a much smaller city um, compared to a lot of your, your neighboring cities. Um, yeah. And so that, that really, I think um, one, one of the things that we're missing um, in the United States as a whole, um, just culturally is, is that divide into bigger and bigger cities where, um, you know, you have 10, 20 million people packed into one city and it's it's 
it, it, you tend to lose a sense of community um, or, or at least the, the close knit sense of community that you can preserve in, in small cities. So um, anyway, um, I've, I've really enjoyed learning more about your work and the city of Quincy. Um, it's, it's not something that I was, I was familiar with prior to this, but, you know, certainly, uh, I mean, it, it, in a lot of areas, an example setter for, for many cities across the country. So, well, Eric, those are all the questions I have for you today. Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me on. It's a, I always love talking about this stuff, and you, you really do a great job with all the – well, I've listened to more than a few of your shows, and you do a great job. It's, it's fun to be on. Perfect. So thank you so much for listening to the Economics Review, and as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.